welcome to The Sacred. My name is Elizabeth Oldfield. This is a podcast about our common life and the deep values of the people who are shaping it. In every episode, I speak to someone who has some kind of platform or voice or ability to feed into public conversations. And I want to get beneath the surface with them to their principles, to their values, to their story, to get a sense of who they really are. In our public conversations, very often, uh, we have them in one of two ways. In very adversarial ways, where two people from opposite positions are put up against each other to have a ding-dong. Or we gather people who are like us or who we know already agree with us, and we talk amongst ourselves. On The Sacred, we're trying to break that mould and do something a little bit different. And so I speak to people from a very wide range of philosophical, political and metaphysical positions, from different professions, different tribes, and try and get a sense of what drives them. This means that if you listen long enough, you will almost certainly hear someone who you would not otherwise have chosen to spend an hour in the company of. And I want to encourage you to push through the discomfort of this, because I think this is how we together build a more curious, open, empathetic common life. In this episode, you will hear a conversation I had with Dr. Ian McGilchrist. Ian has worn many hats. As you will hear, he studied English literature at Oxford and went on to be a fellow in English at All Souls College. And if you don't know about All Souls, it's this very weird, kind of wonderful, um, quite archaic, purely postgraduate college. I think of it as a kind of Hogwarts slash holding pen for geniuses. Um, and if you, if someone's been to All Souls, someone's been a fellow of All Souls at least once, you know they have a really kind of... Um, generation-defining mind. And so Ian was there pursuing a career as an English scholar, but in his 20s he changed path, um, as you'll hear a bit about, wanting to study medicine and went on to be, among other things, a consultant psychiatrist at the Maudsley, which my guess is the, um, the leading mental health hospital in the UK. He came to much more public prominence over the last decade or so decade or so because of two books that he's written. The first was called The Master and His Emissary, and the most recent, which comes in two enormous volumes, is called The Matter with Things. We spoke about Ian's uh, childhood, being brought up with um, non-religious parents, about how formative his experiences at boarding school were, why he has decided to kind of follow the threads that he has in his career, and to my joy, and broadly unprompted, we talked a lot about God. There are some reflections from me at the end, and I really hope you enjoy listening. Ian, we are going to dive right in with a question that I know that you will not balk at, but some people do, which is about what is sacred to you? And you can go at that however um, however feels right to you. Deep values, something else. You can challenge my premise. What bubbled up for you? I certainly wouldn't challenge the premise. I think the concept is extremely important. Famously, it's not encompassable in language. <laughs> and so it's a difficult thing to say, but I can hint at it. Um, it's something I think that I would say speaks to us of something beyond that is 
powerfully rich, beautiful, good, and draws us forward in life by its attractive force. So I don't know quite how to sum it up. It's one of those things rather like being in love, that if you haven't had the experience, you can't really convey it to someone else. Mm. Yes, and we'll come back to some of the reasons that maybe we need to not fight that, but surrender to it. You write um, in various places about the importance of um, truth, goodness, and beauty as a Mm. a three-part something Mm. set of values, famously how Thomas Aquinas summed up God. Could you tell me a little bit about Mm. what what they mean to you? Gosh, (laughs) another really difficult one. Um, I know that they're important, and I believe that it's clear that we're not heeding them in the way that we once did. So I find that truth is travested in our world, that beauty has somehow been sidelined, if not banished, even by art that should know better. Um, And that goodness is very much something we don't really understand. We think it's about following rules and having right opinions, where it's actually about a matter of the disposition of one's soul, the disposition of one's mind and heart, at any rate, if one doesn't like this word soul, but I think it's an important one. Yes. So I I find they're very important. Uh, They've always called to me, um, and particularly, I suppose, well, in in my intellectual life, truth, in in my more embodied life, beauty, um, and goodness is something one comes to understand with experience, it seems to me. And as I say, um, one has to keep revising what one thinks of it, because when one's young, one one latches on to what adults tell one about rules and principles. But it seems to me to go deeper than that. Mm. Well, let's stay with that then and try and get a sense of you as a as a child. I find it very helpful as we're trying to listen deeply and openly and curiosity, curiously to the people shaping our common life. Um, mm. To start with where they came from. Could you talk about some of the mm. big ideas that were in the air in your childhood that formed you? Well, in, at home, um, certainly nothing to do with religion. Um, not that my parents were rabid atheists, but they just didn't really think there was any point in worrying about religion. Um, So my first experience of it really was when I went to, um, I mean, of course, we had school prayers and so on, but my first really proper experience of something religious as opposed to just spiritual was when I went to um, my secondary school, which was Winchester at the age of 12. Um, And the ideas that were in the air there were complicated because um, it was a rather wonderful mix. I mean, on the one hand, officially, we were taught how to to reason well, um, to do maths and science, and to (laughs) decode um, the famously difficult classical languages of Latin and Greek. But there was also, for me, something else there, which was partly to do with a person who was very formative for me, my housemaster, it was a boarding school, and um, he was a completely remarkable person, uh, far more influential really on me than my father, who was a very decent man, a GP. Um, I think he was liked by his patients. He was definitely a kind man, but I don't think he really understood anything much beyond the fairly 
straightforward, everyday mechanical view of things. Um, he was terribly good at setting a joint, but I think he thought that psychiatry was rather funny. Um, however, my housemaster was a spiritual man with an amazing sense of humor. He was rather like a, uh, everybody's idea of a medieval abbot. He was extremely large, and he was about six foot three. He had been a very good rugger player. But he was also, he had, a, he'd, he'd become rather rotund, and he had a sort of hair like a tonsure and gleaming blue eyes. And he was always, his lips were always puckering up into a laugh. So all the time, he managed to bridge this wonderful thing of humor, seeing things in proportion, seeing the absurd but also seeing the deep and not mocking it, but actually nourishing it. And he helped me through that by recommending holy books, um, poetry mainly, uh, but also the sermons of Lancelot Andrews and, and, and uh, the works of Thomas Brown and so on, which I came to, to love. Um, and the other thing was that the, the school was very rounded and we were not, and we were taught that it's very important to have a sort of general reasonable attitude based on an experience of all kinds of things, not just, as I say, on a kind of logarithmic working out of, of what the answer must be, but one that is sensitive to experience. And the experience that that school gave me was, uh, I was a scholar there, my parents would never have, have sent me there otherwise, um, and it was all paid for, uh, amazingly. Um, uh, but it gave me um, a setting which was Ancient were these very old buildings, 14th century monastic buildings, which definitely had an aura of something about them. They were very beautiful. They were, they'd stood for a long time. They had sort of the feeling of ancient ages in the stonework somehow. Mm -hmm. um, and and um, daily rituals, because we had to go to church twice a day initially. Um, I didn't know anything about this, but I got to know prayers. I got to know... Um, beautiful music. I was in the chapel choir. I made the acquaintance of the Renaissance composers, Palestrina, Talis, Victoria, Gibbons, all these people. Um, and uh, I, and Bird, and I also um, was close to nature. The, the school ran out into water meadows, which was a, a very lovely place to just wander in a slightly melancholy way <laughs> that adolescents do, or at least this adolescent did. Um, and so that was, that was how I got the sense of a rich, rich world around me that was not at all um, something superstitious or made up, but was contacted deeply through one's embodied and emotional experience as well as one's intellectual life. Yes. I smiled halfway through that because my dad is also a GP and was an orthopedic surgeon prior to it. So the idea of medicine as DIY is very, um, is, is very familiar to me. You've painted this beautiful picture of a kind of melancholy adolescence, uh, adolescent out in the water meadows. If, how would you describe yourself during that time? Or how might someone who knew you have described yourself, described you? Oh, gosh. Well, I think they would have thought I was a bit... Um, uh, precious, really. They would have thought I was too interested in poetry. Or, I mean, although that was not scorned at that school. I mean, that was an important part of things. It wasn't a sort of um, hearty, sports-only kind of atmosphere, as I hope I've conveyed. It was anything but that. But I think they would have seen me as a rather sort of, a rather shy, perhaps a bit sharp, um, uh, bright, but... Um, moody, perhaps, uh, adolescent, yes. I, I don't know. I've never asked people, but I, I imagine I was pretty insufferable, really, because um, I, I was aware that 
that I did know an enormous amount at an early age, and and um, that's a bit off-putting, really. Mm. Yeah. So I listened to an interview in which you mentioned a sense of having a kind of long-lasting lack of confidence, or um, the confidence being sometimes a challenge. And I have to confess to you, Ian, that one of the things that Mm. this podcast repeatedly does is it challenges my preconceptions about people. And uh, Mm. we'll talk a bit later about tribalism and polarization and the sort of quite left hemispheric Mm. mental shortcuts that we use to categorize people. And I thought, you know, all souls, fellow, boarding school, psychiatrist, male, of course he hasn't got a problem with confidence. (laughs) Um, Could you say, uh, partly as schooling me as I repent for these preconceptions, could you say a little bit about that thread in your life? Yes, I think it was a very strong one at Winchester. Um, Sorry, it won't be interesting to most of your listeners, but there is a big difference in culture between Winchester and, say, Eton. In Eton, and it's a great gift, actually, um, at least to the person themselves, uh, people are taught very much to have confidence in themselves, to believe in themselves, and so forth. We were taught almost the exact opposite, to doubt ourselves all the time. And uh, in Greek, there is a way in which things are argued, in which you have two particles, men and de. And it means, and you start men on the one hand and de on the other. So everything was on the one hand and on the other. And this was the way we were taught to think. So as soon as we'd express something, we were to question it and to see if there wasn't something to be said for the opposite point of view. So actually that was drilled into me from a very early age, that seeing both sides of a question is incredibly important. And I wish that was part of more people's education, because it could save a lot of unpleasantness and violence and aggression and anger uh, and resentment and so forth. Um, So that was it. But also, I cannot account for it. My parents did not in any way undermine me. They rather supported me uh, and and would have given me confidence. And at school, I certainly wasn't told I was not good enough or anything like that. But I've always gone through life with, you know, what they call the imposter syndrome. I'm I'm aware of how little I know. And um, so you, you sort of, you feel like you're skating on thin ice all the time. And you can never have enough knowledge of an area. So when I'm writing, I'm drilling down and gathering in and trying to make sure that what I'm saying is grounded on something that that is very hard to refute. Mm-hmm. But I, 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 I'm a shy person, but I've developed a persona, as many shy people do, for performing. And um, it, it's interesting to me as, as a psychiatrist that some of the people who had what's now diagnosed as social phobia in the past, they just have been said to be rather a shy or retiring person. Um, often take jobs that involve them um, being on stage or, or being a DJ is another famous one. But the, the, you'd think you'd have to have a lot of confidence to do these things. But actually, it's a kind of way of of performing, which is which is not too threatening. Mm. And when you were at Winchester and going to chapel yeah. twice a day sometimes and listening to, mm. you've been listening to a lot of... Um, Talis's Lamentations this week. Uh, it's been in yes, my ears. Yes. Did you, you know, coming from a non-religious or not explicitly religious family, did you feel drawn to Christianity, to God? Did you, what, what was the kind of journey around that for you in your teens? No, I, I, I was drawn very much, uh, so much so that I was pretty certain that what I wanted to do after school was to study theology and 
be ordained and then go into a monastery. I wow. mean, that was, that was definitely my ambition. Um, <laughs> it was based on very little experience of life. And um, as soon as I had a little, I repented me of this, <laughs> this idea. And um, a good thing too, I, I, I say, for me and for the monastery. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm a bit of a rebel. Uh, um, I don't like to just take things because somebody says so. Um, so I'm often adopting another position from the one that's fashionable in order to see what's been lost here and to recover the valuable in it. Uh, and I often say that I'm the believer among skeptics, but I'm the skeptic amongst believers, that I often think, well, yes, but hang on, you know. Mm. So my, I, I've never been one of those people who has 100% certainty about anything in the spiritual and religious realm. Mm. Um, I'd go so far as to say that, you know, I admire and envy people who have that certainty, but I think there should be a bit of a question mark over it mm. because these are not really realms unless one has a very, very convincing and undeniable personal experience that just absolutely convinces one. Mm. Uh, this is not an area in which 100% certainty can be had. Indeed, it's a matter of faith, and it wouldn't be faith if it could be certain. Mm. Faith is a matter of having trust in something. Mm. And trust is part of a relationship. And trust can be upheld, fulfilled, or it can be betrayed. And so I see whatever it is as a two-way relationship between between God. I, I say the word in that slightly hesitant way because the word God is mm. so surrounded by, by uh, assumptions <clears throat> and images that I think are, are damaging and I'd want to distance myself from. But nonetheless, in the end, one has to call it that. Mm. Um, God, the divine, the sacred realm, whatever. That, that it is something that is responsive um, to, to us, um, that we are called to respond to it, that it is always a relationship, mm. that it is, in fact, to do with love. And love is another very powerful thing that can be reciprocated or can be lost. So I think it's a good way to think. Um, sorry, I may have wandered off the question there. but No, I love it. And I, um, I'm about to wander off as well, so who knows if this will stay in. But I, um, I have been writing, trying to <laughs> write a chapter on God myself, which I just finished before I started reading your chapter, The Sense oh, of the Sacred. And the way I got round that um, is for most of my book, the word God is in square brackets. And... Um, and then I got to you and you started talking about a non-word. We need we need a, an unword. We need a word that unword. And you know, those, trying to find those linguistic signals, like you know, Orthodox Jews not saying the name, or we need to yes. find some way to signal that you can't drop this into a conversation casually and expect no. that it doesn't drag with it this this kind of semiotic baggage um, that will be setting that's, off, you know, existential. That's right. Fireworks in the person who's receiving it, and just I very much valued. Um, yes, uh, th that honest wrestle, but I will try and stay on track and we'll come back to it. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, tell me, um, so you said you thought you would study theology and go be a monk, but that's not what happened. Well, yes. how, how did you study, end up studying English instead? Well, um, <clears throat> in order to get into Oxford in those days, I don't know if it's still true, you had to sit an exam and you had to sit it in some school subject and uh, theology wasn't a school subject. So instead, I thought, well, I, I like English literature. 
um, and I'll I'll do that. So I I did examine that. I was called for interview, uh, and uh, my interviewers were John Bailey, who's better known as the husband of Iris Murdoch, um, but was a very brilliant writer and critic in his own right, and uh, Christopher Tolkien, the son of J.R.R., who was to be my Anglo-Saxon tutor. Wow. And um, there were also a couple of philosophers, Anthony Quinton and the theologian Gary Bennett. Uh, and they, they said, you can't do um, theology and philosophy, which is what I'd applied to do, because I, I wasn't really interested in theology if it was mainly about the Bible. I was interested in theology if it was mainly philosophical theology. And I also wasn't interested in philosophy, politics, and economics, which was the obvious alternative at Oxford, because I really hadn't and still have very little um, interest in politics and economics. I'm mainly interested in the kind of philosophy which has room in it for God. So theology and philosophy looked like precisely the course, but it had only been set up that year, and it wasn't yet an honours degree. And they all said, no, you can't do a non-honours degree. You need to do a, a degree in which you can you know, show your strength. So um, either I think you need to do theology or you need to do English. And I wasn't at that stage sure enough that I just wanted to do theology. I really wanted that philosophy. Because I've always really been basically interested in philosophy, even when I was a schoolboy. And so I, I did English. They said, come and do English. Um, and and they, they gave me a scholarship and I went and did English. Um, and I enjoyed it very much. But I didn't really want to go on with it forever because I liked literature so much that I didn't want to spend my whole life, as I sometimes say, operating on my friends. You know, it, mm. I, I wanted to have a different relationship with literature. Mm. And uh, as soon as I uh, got my degree, um, uh, I was encouraged by John Bailey. I'd never heard of it, but to sit the All Souls College examination, which... I mean, it's amazing what you don't know. I mean, I was in New College right next door to it. I just knew there was a funny college there that had only nons in it and was rather weird. Um, but he said, no, no, go and sit this exam. So I did. And amazingly, I got a fellowship there, which gave me seven years to do what I liked. And I had provisionally arranged to do a doctorate in uh, late 18th and early 19th century literature. But Derek Parfit, the philosopher, was a very kind man. And he took me under his wing, really, and he said, you, um, you shouldn't do uh, something like that. You can do a doctorate anywhere, but you've been given something very special, which is seven years to do exactly what you like. And he said, instead, why don't you read widely around things that interest you, go to different seminars and different faculties, and decide what you want to do, which I did. And in the process, I'm thinking about literature, I, I, I came to the conclusion that there was something wrong with the way we processed literature in the, in the academic world. Um, and in brief, um, I, I, I thought of works of literature not as something clever for critics to show off in relation to. It was a sort of terrible um, feeling that critics knew more than the, the author they were criticizing. They worked from a superior position in which they saw what the author himself never saw. And... Um, and often the work of art, the poem, the novel, the play, was really more like a trampoline on which the critic could do acrobatics and show off how clever he was, but distracted attention from the actual work, which required a patient, close openness for the work to speak. 
And so I wrote a book called Against Criticism, which was then published by Faber in my 20s. Um, and that was uh, really on what we do wrong with literature, which was to take something that really meant something to the person who wrote it and wanted to communicate with other human beings that was absolutely unique in its nature. If it was good, if it was second-rate and mediocre, then it could be, yes, rather just an example of a bad something. But if it was a great poem or a great play, it couldn't possibly be substituted by anything else. That's the first thing. Second thing was that it was an embodied statement. It wasn't just a bunch of ideas. It was something that worked on you physically and emotionally when you read it in much the way that you know, music does. And, and the, the third thing was the uh, ignoring, ignoring of context. So when you take a phrase out and transliterate it, if you like, into prose, um, it means something different from what it meant when it was embodied in the poem. And so I, I, I thought there's something wrong with this. And I, I thought it was about the mind-body problem, essentially. That, in other words, we, we were entirely cerebral in the way we approached it, whereas in fact it asked for something else from us. Mm. And um, I went to the uh, mind-body uh, problem seminars in the philosophy faculty, and I just didn't find them at all satisfactory because they were just too disembodied. Mm -hmm. So I thought I'd better, better do... <laughs> yes, I know. Um, and so I, what I really conceived was... Um, it, it came from two places. One was I wanted to understand how when something changes in the brain, it changes the mind of the person. And how when something changes in the mind of somebody, it can have bodily effects. They can develop diseases that are based on a psychological problem. So this relationship seemed to be much more fertile. And I, you know, just come across uh, Sachs's Awakenings at that point. Uh, and that was his greatest work. And uh, to me, it was wonderful because it combined the ability to see individual cases as individuals, but to see what general truth could be recovered from them. And I thought, I want to be something like this. Yes. And so I went to the medical faculty in Oxford and said, I want to do medicine. I was 28, so 10 years older than most nippers straight out of school. Yes. And they said, yes, yes, of course you can, but you'll have to go to the... Um, you have to go to uh, get your A-levels, you know. Um, and I, I, I'd just been a, a fellow of all souls for seven years. <laughs> and I thought, well, I don't really want to do that. So in, at the time, I'm sorry, this is just, you asked for a bit of autobiography. I mean, I'm, I went to Southampton University, which had just been set up by somebody from Oxford who decided that what we needed was a medical training which brought together the humanities and science. Mm. And and it wanted also to encompass the possibility of people turning to medicine slightly later, not just as a, well, you're doing well at chemistry, so you better become a doctor, but somebody who'd actually lived for a decade or so and thought, no, no, I really want to be a doctor. And that's the second place in, in which this idea came to me because it was almost like the equivalent of my wish to be ordained or whatever it was. I, I'm afraid in a corny way, I did see being a doctor as a way of of devoting oneself, of serving others. And I think I, vocation is the opposite of corny, Ian, and the fact that we feel like we have to apologize for it is a bit of a tragedy. <laughs> it is a bit of a tragedy, and it tells us something about the age in which we live. Yes. But in any case, so that, that's what I did. I went off, studied medicine, um, did a bit of neurology uh, and neuro, neurosurgery in a very low level. And then went to the Maudsley and um, and that the rest is, uh, well, not quite, but the rest is history. <laughs> yes. So 
gosh, Ian, so much in there. It's making me think about how we read scripture and that I want to, I want, I imagine someone who's already written the against criticism for scripture, you know, don't dissect it into dry <laughs> doctrines, just let it work on, work on you. Um, I want to hear about the time when you were working in psychiatry and, uh, it, you know, uh, having great success in this second career, essentially. And the hemisphere hypothesis, this sense that there are different modes of attention um, that the different hemispheres of the brain have and that that impacts much more than um, has been thought in the past. I'd love to hear, as you were kind of you know, building essentially on against criticism and, and bringing in all these disciplines and this was emerging in you, how obvious it was that this was your project, you know, that this was the thing that you needed to say in the world or whether there were times where you thought this is too big, I need to go at one small area or no one's going to take me seriously. I'm just going to read a bit from the beginning of, I can't remember which of your books, but it says something like, you know, this is the book about the nature of reality, the cosmos, morality, consciousness and God. You know, it's just like, what was it like coming to realise that that's what you needed to write? Ooh, well, there are two things, two different ways, <laughs> appropriately. One is that, in a sense, they had always been what I was interested in, and therefore it wasn't that they came to me. Um, since my teens, I had found these concepts, as I've really already mentioned, very important. How I came back to them at that time uh, is, is, a, is a different story. And in... And I never saw where I was going looking forwards, but I can see where I was going looking backwards. And of course, it's famous that we, we make sense of a route we followed as though it had a kind of direction afterwards. But it may be that actually there is a kind of direction uh, at work, but just not one of which one's fully conscious. I, I somehow needed this foot in the both camps of the mind and the body, of the you know dealing with, with human beings in the sense that medicine enables one to be part of their their lives and their embodied existence and help them with that, and also be in this more rarefied realm. And um, being an academic by by disposition and a philosopher, really, um, all my all my um, teens and adult life, I went to the Institute of Psychiatry when I got to the Maudsley and said, I want to do some research. They said, what do you want to research into? And I said, I want to research into how children develop a concept of time. I still think this is a fascinating topic. And the person who uh, interviewed me, who was a quite well-known psychologist, um, looked at me and her eyes glazed over and she said, come and clone the P450 receptor. Um, and I said, I don't want to clone the P450 receptor as part of a research team. That's what they wanted. Some A new pair of hands who would be the dog's body on the team where they had a project to clone the P450 receptor. I wanted to do my own research. And I realized that the only way to do this, actually, because I, I, I was so much going after philosophical things that the mainstream psychiatrists are not interested in, was to, was to plow my own furrow. And almost by accident, I happened to go one day to a lecture by John Cutting, who was an older um, colleague. Uh, well, uh, I was still in training. He was a consultant uh, and a lecturer at the Institute. Um, and he was giving a talk based on a book he'd just written, published by OUP, called The Right 
cerebral hemisphere and psychiatric disorders. And I suppose it was um, an eureka moment for me. It wasn't just that um, I liked the general drift of what he was saying. There were three things that struck me very forcibly at the time, which was that he said that the left hemisphere understands more literal language and the right hemisphere alone understands metaphor, irony, tone of voice, the manner in which things are said. Secondly, it understands unique cases, whereas the right, sorry, the left hemisphere tends to have already aggregated whatever it is into a category. Um, and thirdly, the, the right hemisphere was just more in touch with the body than the left. And I, I, I can expand on that, but I've done that in other places and I won't spend time on it now. But those three things really um, struck me very forcibly because in a way they were the three things I found that was wrong with the academic approach to works of art, specifically works of literature, but it applies right across the board, of course. Um, and after the lecture, I went up to John, who was very humble and, and um, not at all one of these um, ambitious academics, um, but was a very thoughtful man. And he said, uh, I'm glad you're interested. And I said, well, I wrote this book against criticism. I gave him a copy. He said, fascinating, come and work with me and do help me with some research. So I was the beneficiary of some work he'd been doing for a long time on hemisphere differences. And mm -hmm. he, unlike almost anybody else, had spent a lot of time sitting at the bedside of people who'd had um, right hemisphere insults, as we say, i.e. a stroke or a, an injury or a tumor, and how this had changed their lives in a way that um, the hurried doctor wouldn't notice so much, because they certainly notice after the left hemisphere stroke, the person couldn't move their right hand, often couldn't speak. This is the kind of stuff that's so barn door that even the average medic can spot it. <laughs> but the other, sorry, no disrespect to my colleagues who are in general a very intelligent bunch, but um, no, the, 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 after a right hemisphere stroke, actually much more of the world has gone, and it's oddly enough much harder to rehabilitate somebody after a right hemisphere stroke than after a left. And uh, this struck me as absolutely fascinating. We, we produced a couple of papers, I think, together. And then I got the opportunity to go and do research at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore, where we were researching on asymmetries in the brain. I was already interested in asymmetry from talking to John. And this was in, to do with schizophrenia. And again, I won't go into the detail, but it was about the importance of the normal asymmetry in, in the brain, how this is lost in schizophrenia and sometimes reversed in schizophrenia and how this results in a very different way of looking at the world. And around that time, I also was um, advised by John to read a book called Madness and Modernism um, by uh, Louis Sass, a very distinguished psychologist at Rutgers. And that book, in, again, a nutshell, showed that there were extraordinary parallels between the experiences reported by people with schizophrenia and works of art since about 1910, so modernism. And they're so striking and they're so deep and interesting that it couldn't possibly be just a, a coincidence. But on the other hand, we couldn't all have got schizophrenia suddenly. So it was something else. What was that something else? It was inability to incorporate into one's vision of the world what is offered to us by the right hemisphere. In other words, a vision of the world based on how the left hemisphere sees it, which is very bizarre as much modern art of course, became.
Yes. And so that's the story, really. I, I then thought, right, this is so important. And I, I'd had so much experience in neurology of patients who had typically had left-sided or right-sided symptoms um, and certain diseases, certain conditions, certain syndromes are known to be preponderantly left-sided or right-sided. And I just thought that in itself was very interesting. Why? And that got me into thinking there's going to be some big differences here. And of course, there are. They just weren't the ones that people had uh, talked about earlier in, in the 60s and 70s. And all my colleagues, you know, who had my interests at heart, begged me not to take this path. They said, you, you've got a promising career. Don't do this. Nobody will take you seriously if you talk about hemisphere differences. It's all baloney. It's all pop psychology. Don't yeah. do this. But in fact, I had the confidence to carry on because I kept finding things that were just too interesting and couldn't be dismissed in this way. Yes. I'm going to ask you to do something which always seems a, a bit violent because of the three enormous, detailed, complex, multidisciplinary books you've written about it and quite left hemispheric, which is to ask you to, to summarize what are the key differences in the way the left and right hemisphere tends to the world? Yes, first of all, on left hemispheric, um, it seems to me that um, if you're going to win people to a point of view, you have to do it by speaking the language that they understand. And so people say, you certainly use your left hemisphere. I always say, well, of course I use my left hemisphere. It's my second favorite hemisphere. And without it, I wouldn't really be performing very well at all. So I rely on my ability to think clearly, to construct an argument and to marshal data. The short version of what happens is this. It seems that the fundamental difference, and this exists in all the neural networks that we know going back hundreds of millions of years, uh, is that creatures have to solve the problem of how to eat without being eaten. They have to be able to focus on something that they can grab and get very quickly. For this, they need detailed, precise attention to a very small thing that they need to manipulate. Um, but that's not the only attention they need. They need at the same time to have a broad, open, vigilant attention for the predator who will make them its lunch while they're getting theirs. And more than that, it needs to be open to everything, to its mate, to its offspring, to everything that's going on in the world. And in a sound bite, the left hemisphere has evolved in all of us to serve well, I say all of us, but I mean in general throughout the history of the evolution of this arrangement, the left hemisphere has evolved to be the one that helps us manipulate the world. And the right hemisphere is the one that helps us understand the world, make sense of it. Because of these two different kinds of attention, the left hemisphere, which sustains this very, very narrow, perhaps three degrees out of the 360, targeted attention to something it already knows it wants, the world is made up of things that are familiar, known, unchanging, unmoving, isolated, um, decontextualized, non-individual, inanimate. That one really stuck with me. <laughs> yes, and, and it's, it's true. And in the right hemisphere, it sees a world in which everything is ultimately connected to everything else. Nothing is ever finally certain, nor completely fixed. It's on the move all the time that often what is important there is something that is implicit in the context and is ruined if you decontextualize. Um, it's in touch with embodied feeling, with emotion, with the physicality uh, of our existence, 
Um, and this vision also has place for the unique individual, and it's an animate world. And just to gloss that, you can, in a perfectly painless procedure, now um, suppress one or other hemisphere for 20 minutes at a time. And when you do this, if you suppress the right hemisphere, people see things that they would normally call living as just mechanical. Whereas if you suppress the left hemisphere, they see things that we would probably think of as inanimate, like the sun, as a living thing. So it is quite interesting. And the other couple of things that are very, very important, and they, 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 one of them sounds fascinating, and it, but it's not as important as the other. That first one is that the left hemisphere is very full of self-confidence. Because it knows so little, effectively, it thinks it knows everything. Mm. And uh, the right hemisphere, on the other hand, is much less certain and has a much um, more modest opinion of its capacities, whereas the left hemisphere has a grossly inflated optimism about what it is and what it can do. Uh, but the last thing, which is really, really crucial, that it must not, might not grab people's attention in the same way, is the difference between the presence of something and a representation. So the right hemisphere is able to deal with the presence of something as it comes into being for us. Um, actually just being there with it and actually experiencing that presence. Whereas the left hemisphere takes it and makes it a representation, literally something that is present after it's no longer present, actually. Uh, Represented. And it's the difference between... Um, a two-dimensional depiction of something and the embodied thing that is there. So, for example, an image is static, it's fixed, it's two-dimensional, whereas the landscape that is imaged is everything else that mm. is left out. And um, a, a quick and dirty way of putting it is that the left hemisphere deals in the map and the right hemisphere in the terrain that is mapped. Mm. And you have... Um... You've described something which sounds like it could be healthy and useful when we're functioning with both hemispheres in their proper. And you talk about the fact they do take over functions of each other. It's not kind of, you know, um, no. hermetically sealed. But not at all. Uh, I think that the reason that your work has been so influential and so moving for lots of people, including myself, is um, the kind of consequences of an a culturally embodied imbalance that we are effectively yes. continually strengthening mm. because the brain is plastic. We are using the left hemispheric form of attention and mm. then reinforcing the left hemispheric form of attention and then denigrating, dismissing right hemispheric forms mm. of attention in ways that mm. change fundamentally our experience of being in the world. Could you narrate just a little bit of the consequences of that for me? Yes. Well, as you say, the left hemisphere is not to be dismissed. It's very important. It's a, a tool, much as it is itself interested in tools. But it's got to be, as it were, in the service of something beyond that. As Lessing said, what is the use of use? I mean, if you just have use, but use for what? And if the answer is only, well, use, there's got to be something else, like the famous goodness, beauty, and truth, the platonic virtues. So we need it, but it needs always to be under the, the superintendence of the right hemisphere that sees more. And in a way, it should be acting as a functionary or something rather like a desktop computer. I, I resist the equation of anything to do with the brain with a computer, but in this one respect, it's slightly like that, in that it's very good at carrying out procedures rapidly, but it's not good at understanding what those procedures mean or imply. 
So it must take material, do a useful preparation, and then give it back to the right hemisphere, which then incorporates it into the full picture. But what happens is that, as it were, the normal passage from left to right is then interrupted. From, sorry, from right, let me rephrase that. What happens is that the normal passage from right to left stops now at the left hemisphere and is not taken back into the right hemisphere. In other words, we think what the left hemisphere shows, once it's broken the thing down, is the reality. But having broken it down into bits, it will seem meaningless, it will seem uh, unattractive uh, and senseless, and it, it, it's lost all its meaning. If you take a piece of music that is profoundly moving and just turn it into a bunch of notes and perhaps catalog all the notes and say, well, we have 37A flats and we've got... <laughs> you know, this is not going to help you understand the piece of music because it's all in what has been lost in breaking it up into bits. Mm -hmm. It's all in the what I call the betweenness, not, not the space between, but actually the construction of relations. And that's another thing that I can only just throw out. But I believe and argue in this book, The Matter of Things, that relations are uh, the the foundation of everything, and that things are not primary and then have to be related, but relationships are primary, and the things we call things emerge from a network of relations. Yes. Now, if we, if, we, if we lose sight of this, what happens is that we start to view a theory, which is extremely thin stuff, as more real than experience. We start to see the map as more real than the land in which people live that appears on the map as just a few lines. We lose all the subtle stuff, all the stuff that comes, the skills that come from experience. It's the downgrading of experience, the downgrading of one's intuitions, the downgrading of one's judgments, uh, as though the only thing that can va validate or verify anything is an argument inevitably based on things that have been isolated, decontextualized, and so forth. Because if it's not based on that, then once again, one finds oneself appealing to people's judgments and their intuitions and so on, which, which we're being taught to disregard to. There's a whole industry of psychologists who move around businesses making a small fortune out of telling people they shouldn't trust their intuitions. But as you know, in The Matter of Things, I have three whole chapters uh, on intuition and its important place. Um, and although it's quite true that intuitions can sometimes mislead us, as I say, there are optical illusions I can show you that you can't believe are right, but they are. But after seeing one, one doesn't say, well, in that case, I'm going to close my eyes from now on. I'm never going to rely on eyesight because it can sometimes deceive me. And the, the cases in which it can sometimes deceive you in intuition are a consequence of its being 99% right. If something is 99% right, most of the time, it will not cover those very occasional things when it's not right. But to just chuck it out is to become a moron because it's intuition that makes one intelligent. And one, what intelligence means is understanding. Mm. So we, we, we're making ourselves fools. We're following very black and white uh, positions because the left hemisphere wants decision now. It doesn't want ambiguity. It doesn't like uncertainty. Because of, remember, it's the one that's grabbing. It wants to get, look, is that a seed or is it a pebble? You can't tell me it could be one or the other. I'm going to get it. And so the left hemisphere is quick and dirty. It's not the one that is more reflective, more 
Ramachandran, B.S. Ramachandran, very, very well-known, distinguished neuroscientist, calls the right hemisphere the devil's advocate because it's not the one that jumps to conclusions. It goes, yeah, but it might be this. Whereas the left hemisphere is jumping to conclusions all the time. So it has a quick and dirty way of thinking. It tends to put people into categories and everything into categories. So, um, you know, you are what you are by virtue of being. As you started off by reflecting, I'm worse than you said. I'm not only um, a male, but I'm old and I'm white. You know, crikey, we better not listen to him. So, you know, it's this categorization which is so heinous. And yet at the same time, we're being encouraged to think flexibly and diversely, but we're not. We're being channeled into very, very rigid, very foolish ways of thinking and then having battles with one another over it instead of going, well, that's very interesting. You see it that way. But what would you say to this, you know, and having a proper discussion? That's what the civilization has grown up to enable us to do. It's what education is for. And we're throwing that away, it seems to me, by our very cut and dried simplistic decisions and ways of looking at things. Yes. And be oh. a, if I may just add, there'll be mm. a growth of bureaucracy and um, an enormous burgeoning of bureaucracy, which works according to purely left hemisphere principles, mm. algorithms based on categories. It never takes account of the unique case. Mm. And the other thing is AI, which again is based on general principles. Sorry, let me... No, I mean, as the listener will be able to hear, there's, this connects to everything. And so <laughs> knowing uh, where to focus. But I think what's coming to mind is I... I I sort of want to tell you a little story about something that happened to me recently um, because I was on the radio, I was on Radio 3 Free Thinking with Daniel Dennett um, and Philip Goff. Um, and oh, wow. um, Yes. So radio, for kind of non-UK listeners, Radio 3 is probably the most highbrow radio station that we have and Free Thinking is amongst the most highbrow shows on it. Um, and uh, we were asked on to talk about meaning, consciousness and God. And, uh, yeah, Uh, Daniel Dennett, one of the most famous atheist philosophers in the world, you know, him and Dawkins, uh, um, horseman of the apocalypse. Um, And Philip Goff, very interesting kind of consciousness, panpsychist, sort of sits in between me and Dan Dennett in one sense, believes that there's cosmic purpose, that the world has um, consciousness, that various kind of scientific arguments lead him to believe, et cetera, et cetera, but not, not not a theist in the same way that I am. And Daniel Dennett, did what Daniel Dennett does, which was speak in an incredibly mechanistic way about the world and human beings and use the brain is a computer metaphor. (laughs) Because I'd recently been reading you and a bunch of other feminist philosophers who I think are so good, have been banging the drum for embodied knowledge. And I'd reading a lot of black theologians who have been so key at putting emotion and experience and um, again embodiment kind of back in the center of theology. I I had gone into the conversation quite cowed because we live in a left hemispheric world and these were two left hemispheric men and I am not a philosopher. I am whatever I am. But I felt emboldened to say, Dan, I think that is disgusting. I think that metaphor is disgusting and dehumanizing. And um, when we get to these questions of the sacred and consciousness and meaning, left hemispheric ways of thinking come to the end of their usefulness. And I asked him at the end, do you think it's possible because of your formation that there are some things that you can't see? 
And I don't think I would have been brave enough to ask that question before because my intuitions, my experience, my voice felt less legitimate than his. But I'm not sure that he heard me and I'm not sure that telling him that the computer metaphor is disgusting was necessarily helpful. So forgive me, that's long, but I'm getting to a question about this divide. When those of us who feel an intuition that there is more, that there is something deeper, Mm -hmm. that there is a sacred beyond us, that our imagination and our intuition and our emotion and our bodies are as important as our reason or reason as it is, you know, thinly defined. Um, What actually helps us see and hear each other? How have you found people who might be hostile to the argument that you're making are best able to actually hear it and respond to it? Um, First of all, um, it's interesting that uh, I did a piece of research uh, some, many, many years ago on, this may not sound relevant, but it is, on the degrees that young people who had psychotic breakdowns at university were studying for. Um, because a lot of them went through the Maudsley, the Bethlehem and Maudsley, because it's a you know tertiary referral right. unit, or even quaternary referral unit. So I, I looked at this, and I found a very, very strong correlation between developing bipolar disorder and studying the humanities and a strong relation, very strong relation between studying um, engineering and developing schizophrenia. And uh, schizophrenia is an example of a a world in which the right hemisphere is not really contributing. And um, this is a way of saying it's quite interesting that Dan Dennett says that he would have been an engineer if he wasn't a philosopher. And by the way, the second most um, uh, populated category after engineering was philosophy. So I think a lot of philosophers, as I've written in that book slightly tactlessly, um, do seem to have a very special way of thinking, which is an exaggeration of the left hemisphere's way of thinking at the expense of what the right hemisphere would contribute. Not phenomenologists, um, they are quite different from this. And I think the um, uh, people like uh, Dewey and, and James and, and so on were different again, the pragmatists. But the modern Anglo-American analytic philosophers um, seem to have gone down a rabbit hole. And what you've flagged up is the importance of metaphor. Um, we only uh, understand things by using metaphors. So we say, oh, I see it's like this, something we reckon we've already understood. But depending on the metaphor we choose, we will see different things in it. So if I compare um, going to um, a football match with um, uh, doing the football pools and betting on a a sport, I see one thing. If I reflect on going to a football match as something more like going to church, I will see something else completely going on. So how we, what metaphor we use really changes the experience we have. And the machine metaphor is pernicious. Uh, Machines are things we made, and we made them according to our very fallible understanding of what things um, are doing in our bodies. And our bodies are not like machines. In chapter 12 of The Matter with Things, I put forward eight uh, reasons why they're not at all like machines. Now, the further question you ask is, how do you get through to these people? I think there's two answers to that. One is to write a book, which I hope is pretty convincing in the sense that it's, I've never found anybody yet who said, um, your your science space is is flawed. 
because that would involve them in reading six to seven thousand papers and 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 showing me what was wrong with them. Um, and and that's not really going to be very helpful. Um, so and, and the other thing is um, arguing for it in 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 a as far as I can, a sort of rational way. Well, if you understand this, then you understand that. Let me take you by steps and, as it were, take you to where I want you to see a different vision. And most people are able to do this, but there are always some people who can't. And one thing that psychiatry teaches one is that one cannot help everyone. So in order to be helped, people have to be willing to be helped to a degree. There are certain conditions where they're not able to give um, informed consent. The Mental Health Act deals with that and they get treatment anyway. But, but really, there are people who will never see certain things. And I believe Dan Dennis is one of those people. Um, you know, he's a very, very brilliant man, obviously. Um, but he's also not able to see certain things, and there are people who can't. Uh, in, in the book, I actually um, do some uh, 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 exposition of um, personality types and uh, and indeed, um, the relationship between autism and an ability to understand or not understand the divine. And on the whole, people who are autistic will have personalities with um, certain characteristics, as I, I list, are more likely, not inevitably so, but are more likely to find it impossible to understand the divine. Mm, gosh, there's so much in there. I want to... Um, uh, land us somewhere about what might this teach us about divides in general. We live in a time when we our default formation is to polarization, tribalism, you know, our natural homophilia, our natural preference for people like us is continually being reinforced by the technology that we use and the news. And a kind of ongoing theme of this project is wanting to find ways to resist that as a spiritual practice, essentially. What might the hemispheric hypothesis have to, um, I mean, it, it, it helps explain a lot, but how, how, I guess, how might this, um, how might your work help those of us who are wanting to resist that growing tribalism and polarization? And is there anything that you personally do, any practices that you use to mm. keep yourself healthy in this way? I think the first thing is to know, to see what's happening, because I think a lot of people are, have no context in which to set uh, their unease with, I think a lot of people would agree with us that there's something wrong, um, but they don't know what it is. And I suppose what I aim to do in the matter with things, which is my final word, I will never write a book of that length or magnitude again, um, it, it is an attempt to provide a wholly new philosophy of life, to see the world a different way. And um, this is not really a way of just saying goodbye my book, but I don't think it would do any harm to do so if you read it, because I've tried to explain that what we're doing is seeing only a very, very partial and degraded version of reality. We've been trained by the culture that, we, that has evolved since the Industrial Revolution particularly, but really also earlier than that with parts of the Enlightenment, to ignore um, that they had value in themselves, but they helped us to be hubristic, to be um, arrogant. And, and that has made us think that we understand everything and we know what we're doing. But we're really actually more like the sorcerer's apprentice in the famous fable, who knew to get, how to get things started but didn't know what it was he'd started or how to stop it. This is where we are at the moment. Um, 
I think that one of the things that would help with the sacred specifically is to see that from the descriptions I've given, and I won't recap them, of the world conjured up by the left hemisphere and the right, if you are buying into the left hemisphere world of certainties, isolation, uh, nothing unique, categories, abstractions, disembodiment, inanimacy, you're not going to understand what we're talking about here. Because it all comes indirectly. It comes through through things that don't speak to us in the literal language of a dishwasher manual, but in fact speak to us through things like poetry, through music, through narrative, through myth, um, through rituals, all these things that if you are able to open yourself to them and experience them, you will know you are contacting something at a much deeper level. You will actually experience, you know, your, your body responding to it, even if it's only to feel the hair on the back of your head stand up when you feel these things. Now, so that's one thing. Um, the, the way we think now is directly opposed to any way of encompassing the sacred. And I rather blame, I'm afraid, um, the church. I, I mean, in a way, they were in a quandary. They saw congregations uh, dropping. How can we entice people back? By making it all more mundane and more like life at home and more simple and more popular. But actually what people crave is not more of what's going on at home because that's exactly what they're finding is not satisfying. They want to be told there's something here that will take patience, silence, prayer, uh, some singing uh, and going through rituals. And then you may see it. And you won't get it by sitting outside it and going, well, you do this, you do that. Is I always say it's like, learning to swim by sitting on the bank with, with, with a book and saying, okay, now I understand, I'll get in the water and swim. You have to get in the water and swim to understand swimming. And I'm afraid the spiritual life is like that. Mm -hmm. um, other things that one can do, I'm afraid I just become very banal here, but I think that the two things that, apart from the obvious thing of... Uh, listening to music and, and playing and reading poetry and, and, and so on, which I, I probably ought to do more of. I'm, I'm just so busy a lot of the time that I, I, I don't. But I do try to make time for two things. One is mindfulness, which is really about stilling the left hemisphere. It's about trying to get the left hemisphere out of the picture <laughs> and enabling the right hemisphere to speak. And it, people think, because this is the left hemisphere way of thinking, that we make things happen. Let's do this and it'll happen. But often it's not doing that enables something to happen. Because what it is you are doing is itself part of the problem. Even if the doing is trying to achieve you know, a more spiritual approach, what you need to do is stop doing many of the things you're doing and listen. Mm -hmm. And in the silence that you create, in the creative space that you bring about, something may come to you. And I can almost guarantee it will come to you if you have created that open space properly. And I'm not going, but where is it? I need an intuition now. I've got to do it. You, know, you can't do that. So, um, and I often say it's like a gardener. You know, a gardener can't make a plant and can't even make it grow. But what it can do is it can create the circumstances in which the plant will flourish or the circumstances in which it won't. And we've created the circumstances in which the spiritual life can't flourish. We therefore need to begin reversing many of the things that we do that get in the way. And this is not unlike psychiatry. So, for example, when somebody comes with a problem, if you're a very naive and um, inexperienced psychiatrist, as we all were once, um, and I did this, I used to sort of say, 
after seeing, I, th- I had a pretty good idea of what this person needed to start doing. And I made the mistake of telling them. And they said, oh, no, no, because they weren't ready to hear that. And they said, oh, I've tried that or something. And then I would say, well, all right, but let's do something else. And, and then a year later, they'd come back to me and say, I've had an insight. I've had a revelation. I've changed and I'm much better. And then they would tell me what they were doing. And it was exactly what I had recommended, but they hadn't been able to hear. So it's no good my saying you should do the following things for two reasons. One is that people won't be able to hear it because if they did, they'd be already doing it. And the, the, the other is that I would narrow down the field of what can be done to my prescriptions. You know, and I don't want to do that. I, I believe people will come up with their own answers, which will be imaginative and things I haven't thought of. So it's not really about prescribing things to do. It's about prescribing, if prescribing is even the right word, it's recommending people to invoke a certain disposition towards the world, a disposition that is marked by gentleness and compassion, by a sense of awe and wonder, and some humility, uh, not in some ghastly, self-abasing way, but just recognizing that, you know, as William James said, our ignorance is an ocean, our knowledge is a drop. And that's still true a hundred years later. We think we know so much more, but what we've done is develop a lot of techniques for putting into practice what we know or don't know. And I'm afraid our ignorance will be played out upon the world very powerfully unless we're able to get back into a a vision of the divine and the sacred that would would lead us to see that there are things we're missing, there are things that we need, there are things that can flourish, but they, they will draw us there not by recommendations of the following bullet points, but by just being there. I sometimes think of the face of Christ as um, displayed in in that amazing um, painting in the Church of St. Saviour of Hora, which I actually um, reproduced in the Master and His Emissary. It was one of the most electrifying experiences of my life. I think it's, it's 12th, 13th century. I, I, I can't remember, maybe even 14th century. But it's, it's uh, ancient. And there's a picture of Christ and his mother. And it's in this ruined church in Istanbul. And, and I remember going in there and just feeling, I mean, even just talking about it, I can feel something inside me that is, it, it was just so, so redolent of so much. It seemed to say everything without saying anything that I can report. And so I think images like that, I have quite a lot of icons. I probably don't pay enough attention to them. But things that that speak to one of something beyond, even if it begins with spending more time in the natural world, because I think the natural world is an embodiment of the divine. It's a way in which the divine is expressed in matter. But again, that takes us to another conversation. What is matter? And is it indeed separate from consciousness? And in brief, my answer is they are not separate. They're aspects of one and the same underlying reality. But that's another talk. To be continued, I hope very much. Ian McGilchrist, thank you so much for being a guest on The Sacred. (laughs) Thank you very much, Elizabeth. It's been a great pleasure. So, gosh, 
lots to chew on in that conversation as I knew there would be and lots of areas that I really wanted to get to and that we just didn't have time for so I do hope we'll be able to invite Ian to come back on um but we obviously started with the sacred and at the end of the matter with things which is Ian's most recent book is this very long chapter called the sense of the sacred and he's spoken elsewhere about how that was the hardest chapter to write it took him a year it's the longest chapter in the book I believe um and so I knew going into the interview having read that um I knew going into the interview having read that chapter uh carefully that it would be something he was prepared and happy to talk about, but wanting to be very careful around. He's both uh, a great proponent of, um, this word spiritual sometimes seems helpful and sometimes unhelpful, but I kind of, may, and maybe the sacred is the better word for it, that the a sense of the sacred, a sense of the divine, a sense that there is something beyond us and our narrow human lives it's kind of vital for our flourishing. It's vital for us being fully human. Um, but he is aware, as am I, how easy it is to speak about those things badly. And so um, he does it very, very carefully. And it was, you know, salutary for a words-based person to be reminded again of how limited language is um, in this area. And one of the things I kept coming back to as preparing for this interview is the question sort of, why didn't you just write a poem? <laughs> And even that, you know, it's words. The, the, the forms of attention which lead us into this more balanced, more humane, more whole kind of life that Ian is um, proposing that we, uh, that we need to attend to, um, we haven't, our formation hasn't given us the tools to know how to think, talk, create, contemplate in that way. So we kind of scrabbled around trying to put something around the sacred into words, which is a suitably humbling thing to do. I really, I really valued getting this snapshot of Ian as a teenager, as a child and a teenager at school. And it's really interesting to me that he came from non-religious parents. I speak to a lot of people who are having a kind of metaphysical midlife crisis. I I'm in the strange position of thinking that there is a huge spike in spiritual openness happening, that lots and lots of people want to talk to me privately or in public about um, faith, about the divine, about meaning. Um, but for a lot of people for whom that's taken um, a more religious or explicitly Christian form, they are there's a sense of homecoming. They are coming from something in their childhood that they rejected and are kind of finding their way back to. It's interesting to me that Ian, although I'm not sure that's how he'd describe his path, did, didn't really have that in his childhood. But what he did have was this um, real sense of a kind of spiritual mentor at school, this housemaster that he's spoken about as both funny and uh, and serious about the divine, about the sacred, about um, the good. And I just feel so glad that Ian went to that school. It this this whole process, this whole interview has made, left me thinking so much about formation, which is something I write and think about a lot. You know, the repeated practices, the cultures that we're part of, the people that we surround ourselves with are what make us. We are formed through those things, uh, often unconsciously. I'm trying to be more conscious about my own formation, the way in my language, my soul is growing and what is it growing towards? Who is it growing with? Um, 
And it was so interesting to hear the ways that the formation of Ian's school left such a lasting legacy on him. And he was able to be this. It sounds like very, you know, he said something about shy but spiky, which I kind of, I can so see, you know, a bit precious, a bit too into poetry. And this tension in him, he said, you know, I knew from a very young age that I knew a vast amount and yet has struggled with confidence and imposter syndrome. And because of the culture of the school, knowing how much he didn't know, you know, that's a strange place to live. I think most of us like to settle, and maybe this is a very left hemispheric thing, you know, we we like to settle on um, a binary, something clear, you know, either broadly we know stuff or broadly we don't know stuff. But Ian's always trying to walk these kind of middle middle ways, even 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 in his own sense of himself, was helpful as often it is in this podcast to admit my prejudices. I hope listeners find this helpful. It, I know it sometimes just makes me look like an idiot and um, I don't love doing it, but I think naming that we all have these um, tribal boxes, these signifiers, that these mental shortcuts that we use to put people in categories and that again and again they're shown to be broadly useless. Uh, at least when you're encountering a real person, that my like, as he said, you know, pick me up on it, like a uh, white male um, academic man equals no problems with confidence. You know, these these um, these scripts that we write for ourselves, uh, part of the project of the podcast is challenging myself on them and sticking to that thing, which is really becoming a theme this series, which is rigorous particularity, unapologetic particularity, approaching each person in front of me as a complicated, fragile, beautiful, foolish um, person, in my language, uh, an image bearer of the divine. So yes, he said no one will be interested in this thing about different school cultures, but actually because I'm English and we're obsessed with class. I am interested that the school culture of Eton is so different from the school culture of Winchester that you can be taught in ways that send you out into the world with the confidence to become a prime minister and attempt to steer us through a global crisis, seemingly on, um, you know, jokes. Or you can go into the world with a sense of how much you don't know, with a sense that there is always the other side of things. And again, of course, that comes back to formation and um, the way we allow ourselves to be shaped interesting about English. He didn't want to spend his life operating on his friends. I think a lot of us who've done English and humanities degrees have felt that, that some, and even possibly in the past, dominant models of criticism require us to emotionally disengage from the very thing that drew us into the subject in the first place, that we are supposed to dissect the um, artwork in order to understand it, and that that gets to us somehow a higher form of understanding than just experiencing or contemplating or being moved by a form of artwork. Um, yeah, it, it, it's connecting with the interview we did this series with James Marriott about criticism and literary criticism. And he's very much a champion for literary criticism as some of the highest form of writing. And I really think it can be, but maybe only when it is... Um, not trying to reduce something to the sum of its parts, but that contemplative form of attention that says to others, um, look, you know, look, 
listen, see, contemplate, don't exploit, attend to, don't dis- dissect, you know, just be in the presence of this thing. Um, and let your attention, your right hemispheric forms of attention work on it. Vocation. It was really, uh, it's always really helpful for me who has been broadly downwardly, or at least uh, orthogonally mobile, um, to hear what I suspected, which was that Ian's colleagues basically said, don't do this. You know, you've got very successful second career as a consultant psychiatrist. Um, Don't go after brain hemispheres. It's discredited. It's pop science. You know, it's not important anyway. Uh, Because the most interesting people doing the most interesting work often seem to me to have had to be quite brave. Courage is a big word for me. How do we build enough courage to... uh, to follow our intuitions, to pull the threads, to use our gifts in the world for the common good. Um, And how often you're having to resist other forms of formation, you're having to choose against established paths in order to do that. Yeah, formation. The the thing that we didn't get to talk about in detail was um, this phrase that comes out a lot in Ian's work, which is attention as a moral act. And it really... It really speaks to me about what we attend to. What and how we choose to pay attention completely changes what we're able to see, completely changes what we're able to encounter. It literally builds the world for us. And so, you know, in this project, repeatedly and consciously and intentionally paying attention to different types of people who I might not have chosen to sit next on the bus or might not have had a reason to encounter otherwise. Listening to the stories of people whose lives have been very different from mine, which is basically everyone, um, changes what I see, continually reshapes my understanding of what a human is, of what a life is, of what someone who is, you know, in this political box or this ideological category, um, their what their experience of might being in the world might be. Um, yeah, just more and more the... The, the great privilege of stewarding our attention. <laughs> we were in the middle of the um, Middle East crisis, the current Middle East crisis as we're recording. And I'm so aware that how I use social media and how I choose to receive news of what's going on there is not a neutral decision, that that is not a functional, pragmatic decision, that it will, it will form me, it will shape me, it will literally shape my neurobiology, it will form my soul, it will... Um, trigger me into reactions depending on who I listen to and how I listen and when I listen. Um, And so I'm thinking deeply about what is a healthy form of attention to tragedy? What is the kind of lament and solidarity that is required for suffering? And what is not? You know, what kinds of attention are actually unproductive, unhelpful, unfruitful, both for those that are suffering and for my own own formation, my own soul. Finally, I think I asked a question. I um, have a Substack newsletter uh, at morefullyalive.substack.com and I wrote an essay about preparing for this interview and how it relates to one of my sacred values, which is relationships. And I wrote there about this tension of Ian talking about the dangers of left hemispheric forms of attention, you know, inanimate, concrete, um, no, inanimate, abstract, linear, um, parts, not holes, uh, 
that he is trying to say we have put too much emphasis on this form of attention and built a world in this way that only values, you know, outputs and outcomes and goals and money and things. And we have not, um, we have not attended in ways that allow our right hemisphere to do its job, basically keeping us fully human, reminding us that we are not machines and there is more and that the fundamental logic of the cosmos is relationship. But as he says, he's done it in a very left hemispheric way. He's written a book that is, the first book is full of brain scans. You know, it is, um, it is a sort of Trojan horse. And I do wonder about it. I'm glad he has. And it's very effective. But a lot of people, and there is, uh, there is a gender element here we didn't even get onto. A lot of women, frankly, or people who've kind of been outside the norm, um, kind of want to go, well, duh to his work, <laughs> you know, not in a dismissive way, but in a, yes, that's what we've been saying. You know, I I remember um, Cole Arthur Riley quoting Audre Lorde to me uh, in the very first episode of this series, you know, the white fathers say, I think, therefore I am. Black mothers, which is the poet in us, I think the quote says, you know, the black mothers, which is the poet in us says, I feel, therefore I can be free. And it's not that the left hemisphere is thinking and the right hemisphere is feeling, you know, Ian will be the first to say it's much more complicated than that. Both can do both, but it's the way, it's the way they do it. (sighs) Yeah, I guess, I guess what I wish I'd asked is, is there danger in communicating the importance of right hemispheric forms of attention in left hemispheric ways? Are we not continually strengthening those pathways rather than letting the value of these contemplative, relational, intuitive, Ways of being in the world speak for themselves. What would it look like to th- strengthen those pathways? Please let me know. I'd be really interested in your thoughts on any episode. This episode, you can find me at my Substack. You can find me on Instagram. You can find me on Twitter, potentially using my attention in unhealthy ways. Um, and you can contact us at all the sacred uh, social media addresses as usual you have been listening to the sacred with ian mcgillchrist i'm elizabeth oldfield our production team are dan turner and fiona hanscom we are edited by drew hawley and our music is by luke stanley the sacred is a project of a think tank called theos which works on a wide range of subjects related to faith identity pluralism is wonderful and it is uh something i'd love you to go check out theosthinktank.co.uk as i said we have a sister podcast reading our times which is a great way to get into the big books of our times and what they are telling us about ourselves and our conception of what a human being is in the meantime i look forward to speaking to you at the next episode and i hope you've enjoyed listening mm-hmm.